Amen and amen. Welcome to church, everybody. It is so good to see you all in God's house. There is nothing like the house of God. Amen. The house of God. David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to live in the tents of the wicked. Amen. The house of God is the place to be. We're glad you're in church today. Welcome to all of our campuses that are tuning in, our online and television audience. We are glad that you are all here to hear a word from God. If you have your Bibles, would you take it out? If you need a Bible, would you raise your hand? The ushers will be glad to provide you with one. And let's go ahead and hold it up. And let's make this declaration of our faith together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. Y'all sound great. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? Luke chapter number seven. Luke chapter number seven. I would be remiss. If I didn't mention the spanking the Cowboys put on the Giants last week, 40 to 0, amen, somebody. I said, amen, somebody. I said, amen, so now I'm just playing. Luke chapter number 7. I love Sundays in the fall, by the way. Sundays are my favorite day of the week. I love it because I love to be in the house of God. There's no place that I would rather be. It's the greatest way to start off any day, to come and gather together with the saints and just be in the presence of God. But then I love it because I love football and I love big meals and that all happens on Sunday. Anyway, Luke chapter number 7, beginning in verse number 1. The scripture says, now when he concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they had come to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Today we're going to conclude our series, He Amazes Me. And I want to flip the paradigm for just a moment. Instead of God amazing us, I want to encourage you with the title of this message, Go Amaze God. Isn't it it just extraordinary to think that somebody could amaze Jesus? Jesus was amazed at this man's Faith. He marveled. He said, have I found faith like this? No, not in all of Israel. What a testimony. How many of you would love to go amaze God? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence that is here today. Thank you for the anointing of God on the preaching of the word of God to touch the hearts of everybody who hears it 
and transform us into the image of Jesus. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen. And by the way, I forgot to just encourage you. Next week begins our Faith, Family, and Friends Month. And so I want to really encourage you, go and invite somebody to the house of God. Last night, they had their back-to-school bash. Our youth nearly 300 kids showed up, and 50 kids came to the altar and gave their life to Christ. Isn't that amazing? We're so proud of all of our young people. Amen, amen. Go amaze God. We've come a long way in our series, haven't we? We have been hopefully and prayerfully amazed by Jesus. That has been the whole point of this series, to return some awe about God to our life and to our faith. We have seen Jesus demonstrate his mastery over molecules when he turned water into wine. We have seen him span the distance between time and space when he spoke a word miles away from where our healing was needed and just his very voice caused that healing to take place. We witnessed him reverse a 38-year condition in a man claiming his mastery over sickness and disease and proving to a whole bunch of impotent folk that were laying in Solomon's porch that he and he alone was the God that healeth thee. Our next stop was the lunch of a little boy which was turned into the feast for 5,000 and we learned that little because much when we put it in the hands of God. From there we watched in wonder as he walked on water, defying the laws of gravity and proving that he can make a road through the ocean and put a river in the desert. And then we stood in awe of him as he transformed the synaptic pathways in a man's brain and reconnected them to the man's eye, proving that he was not just our creator, but since he was our creator, he's the one that can fix anything that is broken on the inside of us. And then when we thought we had saw it all and we were in the book of John we watched as Jesus turned the tomb of Lazarus into a waiting room proving that he was the author and finisher of life and foreshadowing his very own resurrection where he would defeat death by his resurrection and after we looked at all of the miracles in the gospel of John we turned our attention to some of the other miracles in the Bible John says that if he wrote every single one of them down the books could not contain the volumes thereof Jesus was a miracle working machine. How many of you know you cannot hang around Jesus authentically and really and not experience the miraculous in your life? It rubs off on you. The anointing falls off on you. And so we turned our attention to some of the other miracles and we watched in awe as healing virtue left him as a woman who had an issue of blood that no doctor could fix left his body as he touched, as she touched the hem of his garment. We saw him tailor make a miracle for Peter. Peter who needed something to believe and Jesus gave him that something to believe. When he fished all night he caught nothing but at the word of Jesus he dropped his nets on the other side of the boat and caught a boat sinking amount of fish that was just for Peter. We witnessed him restore the mobility of a man who was lowered through a roof by his four friends and he showed that he was not only able to heal our bodies but also the greater miracle to forgive our sins. And lastly, we saw, st- stood in awe of our God who is the Ancient of Days, the Alpha and the Omega.
Omega as he crossed over to the other side of the sea of Gennesaret. And he showed his mastery over the wind and the waves and they obeyed his voice. And then when he got to the other side, he proved that he had all authority over every demonic force as he cast out a legion of angels from a man that was bound and lived in the tomb. And I don't know about you, but when I just recap the miracles of Jesus, it makes me stand in awe of Jesus. It makes me realize that we serve a God of all power, that nothing is too difficult for him, that if man can't do it, God can do it, that Jesus was not just a man perpetrating to be God, but he was God manifest in the flesh who came to this world to set the captive free. And I don't know about you, but we ought to stand in awe of God every second of every day, like the old song says, holy God, to whom all praise is due, I stand in awe of you. That's who Jesus is. And as we looked at all these things and we saw the miracles of Jesus, we come to our text and we see the paradigm totally flipped. And no longer is Jesus the focus of the story, not because he shouldn't be in our hearts, but because he himself flipped the focus. And he flipped the focus to a man that caused Jesus to be amazed. And when I read this, I thought to myself, how can this be? How could you ever amaze God? God knows the beginning from the end and all the details in between. Every single one of our days is ordered of God. God has seen them before they unfold. Nothing is a surprise to God. And yet here is this man, an unlikely suspect, by the way, who is absolutely operating in a faith that Jesus has never seen expressed by anybody before. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, I've not seen such great faith, no, not in all of Israel. And Jesus marveled. I don't know about you, but I want that to be my testimony. I want my testimony to be that my heavenly father is amazed by me. I want him to be amazed by my walk. I want him to be amazed by my talk. I want him to be amazed by my character. I want him to be amazed in the way that I conduct myself. I want God to be, what a testimony to have that we would stand before God someday and God would not just say, well done, good and faithful servant, but imagine if he said, you amazed me. Could you imagine that, hearing that from God? This man amazed Jesus. And the reason was simple. He had a faith that was extraordinary. He had an amazing faith. Faith pleases God. Matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. It is impossible to please God without faith, without this faith that says, God, I trust you no matter what. God, I believe you no matter what. And this man had such faith in Jesus that Jesus didn't even need to come into his house, that he could just speak the word and he would be healed. Healed. And so I want to talk to you about what does an amazing faith look like? What is, what is that profile like? What does it take to have amazing faith? And we see this in four characteristics this man's faith had. Number one, the first thing that amazing faith or faith that amazes Jesus has is a great love for people. Somebody said, or in 1 John chapter 4 verse number 20 it says this, if someone says, I love God, but I hate my brother, He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, 
How can he love God whom he has not seen? In other words, there is an undeniable link between our relationship with God and our love for people. And not just good people, not just people who look like us and act like us and think like us and people who we can get something from or people who can return a favor, but just people. And sometimes the greatest expression of our love for God is our love for somebody who cannot do anything for us in return. Somebody who doesn't deserve love, if you will. And this man, as we look into his life, he's that type of guy. And to understand this, we really have to see what it says about this man. Luke chapter 7, verse 2 again says, And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. This is so amazing, we have no idea. Elders of the Jews, going on behalf of a Roman centurion, not because they have to, but because they want to, pleading with Jesus to come and heal this man's servant. This is mind-blowing. You say, why is this mind-blowing? Because Roman occupation was a thing in Bible times. I mean, the Jews hated the Romans. The Jews considered the Romans to be idolaters that were in their promised land. They considered it to be an abomination of the Lord that these Romans were in their promised land occupying them. They hated the Romans. Matter of fact, they couldn't wait for their king to come. Why? Because they felt when their king came they, that their king would deliver them out of Roman tyranny. They hated the Romans. And if they didn't hate the Romans bad enough, they hated the soldiers of the Romans. Romans even more because the soldiers of the Romans were the ones who were tasked to enforce Roman occupancy and law and make sure there was no uprising. And so what they would do is not just enforce the law, but they would extort taxes from the people as a way of keeping them bound. And this Roman centurion, literally it meant ruler of a hundred soldiers, was somebody who was hated. Some scholars even believe even though he was in Rome, he was not necessarily Italian, too bad for him. He was probably a Samaritan. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. They couldn't stand the Samaritans. They were considered half-breeds because they intermarried with the Jewish people. And if you remember the story of the woman at the well, normally Jews wouldn't even step foot on Samaritan soil. And so here we have this Roman centurion who is loved by the elders of the Jews. This is absolutely astounding. And so what we see in this guy is an ability, a love that crosses over culture, a love that crosses over enemy lines, a love that doesn't just love the people who are like him and think like him and believe like him or any of those things, but a love that knows how to reach out to people. And this is one of the signs of faith that amazes Jesus because people are the most important thing on the planet to Jesus. And not just the type of people that we all think deserve it, but how many of you know that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? All people. He loves all people. And then when we get a little further into this man's life, we see that his love for people, which was the evidence of his amazing faith, or one of the evidences of his amazing faith, extends beyond just his ability to interact and be loved by the elders of the Jewish community or the religious leaders and love them back, but also for his servant. He loved his servant. 
Now, this doesn't shock us because we don't understand the culture of the day. But the word that is used here is the Greek word pious, P-A-I-S. And it literally describes a little boy, causing some scholars to believe that this might have been this man's son and not his servant. Now, if that were true, I don't know that it is true. If that were true, it would be an exclamation point on the goodness of God. Because Roman centurions were not allowed to marry. When they signed up to be part of the army or when they were enlisted to be part of the army, they had to serve for 25 years and they couldn't be hooked up to a family because it would distract them when they were on the battlefield. It would cause them to not fight as fierce because they would want to preserve their life and return home to their family. And so if it were true that this servant, pious little boy, was his son, that it would mean that this man had an illegitimate relationship and a child outside of marriage. And if that were true and And Jesus went to heal him anyway. It just goes to show you the love of God. That God in his goodness loves us so much that even if we were the ones who made the mistake, thank God he still fixes our mistakes. Aren't you glad about that? Aren't you glad that God doesn't say you caused it, you did it, you were the one? But God does it anyway. Now I don't believe that it was his son. I believe it is more probable that he was a mentee. He was, he was a, a, a young boy, a young kid, who was assigned to the Roman centurion so that way he could learn how to be a man and he could be trained for the army. This was a common practice in Bible days. And to these young men, these centurions were considered heroes. They were looked up to. They were like man's, men's men. And because there were a lot of young boys or servants that were assigned to these centurions, we had a lot of evil pedophilia taking place in this type of community. Not this crazy, evil, woke nonsense that calls it minor attracted. It's called pedophilia, and it's one of the most horrible sins in all the world. And sure enough, this young boy, because he was a servant assigned to this man, uh, he was considered to be expendable. And if he got weak and sick and was useless, they would just replace him. But this guy, this Roman soldier, who has crossed over cultural lines with a love that shocks Jesus, not only loves the Jewish people, his enemies, but he also loves this servant who is expendable. And, and, and this is shocking to Jesus. Where did this man get this kind of love? Now we understand that this man was eventually, uh, somebody told him about Jesus because when he comes to Jesus, he calls him Lord or Master of all. And so we know that he's already been saved. He's already given his life to Jesus. He understands who Jesus is. And when he gave his life to Jesus, something happened to his heart. The love of God was shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit. Spirit. It is impossible to be a true believer and have a disdain for people. Your love for people ought to go through the roof when you give your life to Jesus because you ought to look at people and you ought to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. That's somebody that needs Jesus and that's somebody that needs Jesus and that's somebody that's got potential. And this man had it. And his love for people was one of those elements that made Jesus say, his faith amazes me. Remember what Jesus said? He said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. How? That you love 
one another. But the second thing that amazes Jesus, and by the way, the greatest way that you can love somebody is lead them to Jesus. The greatest way that you can love somebody is to lead them to Jesus. Why would we not tell people that we love about Jesus if we truly believe the message of salvation? If we truly believe that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, why wouldn't we tell people about Jesus? And not telling them about Jesus is probably one of the greatest indictments of our love for people because if you love someone, you want them to have everlasting life. If you love somebody, you want them to have the greatest gift that they can possibly possess. If you love somebody, you want to see their soul snatched from hell. And so you want to tell them about Jesus. That's why we have these months, faith, Friends, in fun months, because we need to go out and tell people about Jesus, because that is an expression of our love for them. But notice the second characteristic that this man had. He had a great generosity toward God's house. One of the significant signs of an individual who has an extraordinary faith is an individual who has a great generosity toward God's house. Notice what the text says again. It says, and when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly. In other words, they didn't have to, they wanted to. They begged him earnestly because this man proved his love to them, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation, and check this out, and has built us a synagogue. This man was a man of means. This man was apparently a man of wealth. And I want you to notice that this man, because he was a man of great faith, was also a man of great generosity. I've said this before, but let me say it again. It is possible to give without loving. It is possible to give without loving. Anybody ever got an obligatory invitation in the mail for something? You're like, oh. But you give anyway, because you have to, right? There's obligatory giving. You can give without loving. But here's the flip side of that. You cannot love without giving. It is impossible to love without giving. For God so loved the world that what did he do? For God so loved the world that he gave. You see, if God loves, then God gives. They are linked together. Jesus said it this way, that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We cannot say we love God if we are not generous with the things of God. Just a few verses later in the particular text that we used as our opening text today, we find the story of Mary, the prostitute, and her alabaster box of perfume. And she's watching as Jesus is invited into this house of aristocrats, and because they're trying to trap Jesus, They don't treat him with honor. They don't greet him with a holy kiss. They don't wash his feet. They don't do all of the things that are customary in those days. And Mary is watching this because all of these meetings took place in these outside porticos at the house of people who were wealthy. And so they were able to be seen by everybody else. And people who were outsiders would kind of watch to see who was hanging out in these porticos. And sure enough, Mary is watching this whole thing. And she's watching the disrespect that has been shown to Jesus. And what does she do? She busts in. She crashes the party. She makes a beeline to Jesus and she breaks her alabaster box of perfume. It was worth one year's wages and she begins to anoint the body and the feet of Jesus with her costly perfume. And everybody looks at her and looks at Jesus. And you remember what they said? This man, if he were a prophet, would know what kind of person it is that touches him. And Jesus reading the thoughts and intents of their hearts 
Sometimes I feel embarrassed because even if I'm not sinning outwardly, there's stuff going on on the inside. I'm like, God, I don't want you to know that right now. Jesus is reading the thoughts and intents of the heart. And he says, for she has been forgiven much, so she loves much. But she never said, Jesus, I love you. How did Jesus know that he loved her much? Because she broke her alabaster box. She broke something that was costly on the feet of Jesus. And so her love was linked to her giving. This man had a great love and therefore a great faith because faith works by what? Love. Great love has great generosity toward the things of God. Can we just call a time out and just like, just be family for a minute? Can we stop fronting on God? Saying that we love God when we're not generous with Him? Can we, can we stop pretending? It is impossible, 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 impossible. Did I say impossible enough? It is impossible to love God and not be generous with God. And see, we sometimes only want to give to God. And this man is not looking for Jesus to do it because he gave, because he built a synagogue. Because that's not what he told them to say. He actually didn't want to go to Jesus because he felt unworthy. They went to Jesus and they said, you ought to do this because he did this. And by the way, God ought to do nothing because of what we've done. We don't ever get generous with God because we are looking to strong arm God into doing something for us. We can't buy a blessing. Now don't get it confused. God does honor our seed, but our seed is not the reason why God blesses our life. The reason why God blesses our life is because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's called grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. This man didn't give to build the synagogue because he wanted something from Jesus, but because he gave out of his love for Jesus, he got the greatest miracle of all, which was the miracle of salvation. Jesus was willing to respond to the man's faith that was evidenced in the man's seed. Y'all just missed that. Go back and listen to it. Hit rewind because it's so important. In other words, what I'm telling you is don't confuse your reason and your reward. Your reason and your reward. My reason for being generous with God is because I love him. My reason for being generous with God is because he's done so much for me already. But my reward for being generous with God, which God, other than the fact that he made himself bound to his covenant, has no obligation to give to me. God doesn't have to do anything to me. God, in his sovereignty and his goodness, made a covenant and a law of sowing and reaping. He said, if you give, I'll give back to you. But God didn't have to do that. God wanted to do that. And the reason why God wanted to do that is because he loves us so much. This man's faith was amazing because he had a great generosity toward the things of God. Not just the things of God, but the house of God. Listen to what the scripture says. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, zeal for your house has consumed me. David is speaking. Another place in scripture, and I quoted it earlier. David says this, he says, how lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. 
My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. In other words, he says, God, I have this strong desire to be in your house. My soul longs for that. I can't wait for Sunday. That's what David was saying here. I can't wait to be in the house of God. I can't get enough of the house of God. He says, he goes on, he says that um, uh, 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 even the sparrows have found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. There's a whole bunch of people that don't believe you need to go to church. They never read this song. David said, blessed are they that dwell in your house. They will still be praising you, Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca. What does that mean? That they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. Well, when everybody had to come to the house of God for the different pilgrimages, the one that was in Jerusalem where the Ark of the Covenant was, they would come from wherever they were, all their own temples, but they would come to the house of God, they would make a pilgrimage. They had to pass through this valley of Baca, and oftentimes during the time they had to come home, it was filled with water. It was almost impassable. And you know, if they were modern day Christians, what they would have done? Oh, tried to get to God's house. I guess I'm going home. It's raining today. Ha, too hard, raining too hard outside. Can't get to church today. Too cold outside. Can't get to church today. We have a weak brand of Christianity. It is so different than the brand of Christianity that is in the Bible. David said, no matter what, nobody would let them stop from getting to the house of God. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion, O Lord God of hosts. Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. O God, behold your, our shield and look upon uh, uh, the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand Elsewhere, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord God will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk upright. O Lord God of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now see, we like to, we like to do surgeries on the Bible. And so what we do is we do a surgery on this verse. No good thing will God withhold from those who trust in him. He just did a surgery on the Bible. The evidence that you trust in God is your passion for the house of God. That's what the promise is for. The promise is for those people who can't get enough of God, who realize that the house of God is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of, that have a passion to see God work. God moves through his church. And so David is telling us what this man knew that there is a generosity faith that amazes Jesus has a generosity a great generosity for the house of God now watch this number three number three because I better get off that because some of you get real quiet you put your head down like this you know all this kind of stuff the third thing that amazes Jesus about faith is a great understanding of grace Luke chapter 7 verse number 6 says then Jesus went with him And when he was already not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy that you should come underneath my roof. Therefore, I didn't not even think myself worthy to come to you. Everything about this man's faith is amazing. To the Jews, their whole system is about making yourself worthy. That was the Jews' whole system. 
Do this and you'll be right with God. Do that and you'll be right with God. Serve here and you'll be right with God. Serve there and you'll be right with God. Give this and you'll be right with God. Give that and you'll be right with God. It was all about the things that you can do to be made right with God. And it was all about how can you make yourself worthy, 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 worthy. Can I just tell you something? If you give a gazillion dollars, that doesn't make you right with God. If you serve until your fingers fall off, that doesn't make you right with God. None of the things that we do make us right with God. we got to reverse the order. It's because we have been made right with God that we want to do the things that we do. It's not we do the things that we do in order to get right with God. In other words, we're not trying to earn the grace of God by the things that we do because grace, by definition, is unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it and I didn't deserve it. There's nothing we can ever do to deserve it. But because we have freely received of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, it motivates us to do everything that we want to do. In other words, I don't have to, but I want to because of what God has already done in my life. And this man understood that. This man had a great understanding of the grace of God. He understood what Isaiah says when it says, but we are all like an unclean thing and all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, no, not one. In other words, there's no amount of good. No amount of good that any man can do. You know what's amazing about the gospel? I know this will rub some of you the wrong way, but I'll say it anyway. What's amazing about the gospel is we can have in heaven somebody who's lived their life horribly their whole life but has a genuine encounter with Christ just before they die and they go to heaven. We can have somebody else that has lived wonderfully by the world's standards but didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. And guess what? They don't go to heaven. Because if all you and I could do was be good to get to heaven, why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Why was Jesus necessary? The standard of God is not moral goodness. The standard of God is absolute perfection. And even the best people you know in all the world are not perfect. But that is the standard of God. You know how we say in church, no perfect people allowed? In heaven, the sign says only perfect people allowed. Say what, pastor? You don't understand what makes somebody perfect. What makes somebody perfect in the eyes of God is not their behavior. It is that they are in Christ. It's that they have been covered by the blood of Jesus. That God no longer sees them through their own sin and self-righteousness, but now God sees them through the eyes of Christ. And so God literally does forget their sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It is called grace and this man understood grace and his belief was totally contrary to the Jewish belief. The Jewish belief is you do this and you're worthy and you do that and you're worthy and you do this and you're worthy. Have you ever prayed a prayer and thought, well, the reason why I could believe God for this is because I did this. No, listen to me. It is by grace. Everybody say by grace. Through faith. We left the by grace part out. And we said it's just through faith. No, if we didn't have grace, our faith would not be 
powerful. If we didn't have grace, our faith would not produce. It is because of the grace of God that our faith can believe God for the things that he has promised in our lives. And this man had an understanding. Now, he didn't have a full understanding because how many of you know when Jesus was resurrected, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn to and fro. What did that mean? Access into heaven was now granted. And thank God for Hebrews, which says that you and I who are in Christ can come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need and find grace and mercy to help. We don't have to go through somebody else. We can go right to the source ourselves. But this man understood grace in and of myself I'm not worthy great faith has a great understanding of God's grace but lastly this morning great faith faith that amazes Jesus has a great regard for the authority of the word of God notice the next portion of the text Luke chapter 7 verse 6 Lord do not trouble yourself for I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof therefore I did not even think myself worthy to come to you in other words I I, I didn't send somebody to you because I was trying to be disrespectful I sent somebody to you because I haven't yet learned I haven't yet grown in my relationship with grace I don't know that I can come directly to you all I understand right now is I'm not deserving and I'll tell you I don't know which one is worse to, 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 to believe you are so deserving that you forget about grace or to not understand that grace has made you able to walk into the presence of God. I don't know which one is more detrimental to our theology, but I think both are necessary in our life. This man understands authority. He said, I didn't come because I didn't think I was worthy. I'm a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go and he goes and to another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he do, does that. And then he goes on, he says, just say the word and my servant shall be healed. This man understood the power and authority of a word from God. He understood that as a military man, he was a representative of somebody. That the word of his commander in chief was the word that carried the day. That everything would have to bow to the word of that commander in chief. And this man understands who Jesus was. This man understands that he is the master over it all. That he is the commander in chief of angels armies. That he is the Lord God of heaven and earth. And he rightly esteems the authority of his word over sickness and disease. He understands the authority of his word over life and death. He understands that by his word he spoke the world's into existence. He understands that by his word, all of what we see came into order. By his word, the stars were flung into the sky. By his word, the seas stopped at their shore. By his word, he laid the foundations of the earth. He understands who this was and he says, if you'll just speak that word, if you'll just say that word, everything has to obey you because you are God. I would to God that the church would understand the authority of the word of God it is like having the presence of God when God speaks it there is power in the name of Jesus there is power in the word of God there is power there is life there is healing in the word of God somebody said I just want to speak the name of Jesus your name is power 
Your name is healing. 